anyone that's really family orientated, they go, oh yeah, well we know your, we know your brother, or we know your thing. Come on in. You're one of us. You don't have no questions asked because you're related. And that's really nice acceptance. You know, we went in there. They all knew sort of who I was. They knew about, you know, you know I was Nick's brother. They know. That's it. They don't have to ask any questions. You know, they they assumed I must know this, that, the other. And, and, and um, yeah, it was just that was it. I mean, I, I met Hubert Stumlin. It was like we already knew each other for 20 years or something. Oh, yeah, you know, da, 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 da. And this is great camaraderie that you get. This podcast episode is brought to you by Biotropic Labs. We are innovators and leaders in competitive edge sports supplements. Enjoy this special podcast episode and help us spread the word. Have fun. So I see you're a president to be Don Trump's. Uh, <laughs> is that up? Uh, uh, it's like fucking, uh, it's a saga, isn't it? With, with whatever, all these goings on in Russia have been exposed. What took you so long to get to it, man? We've been at we've been talking for two minutes. I figured we'd get right to it right out of the gate. You know, the amazing thing about Russia is they say they're saying, "Well, what do you mean? Prove it." I mean, you know, there was a guy here ten years ago, Lebinov, I can't remember, who he defected out of the what the KGB, the FSB, and uh, they came over here. The agents came over here and poisoned him with plutonium, sort of two five one or something, in his tea. Right, and he turned green and died sort of horribly. And the only place you can get that is like, I mean, you can't buy that sort of stuff anywhere. They found they traced the stuff because you can trace the stuff. It's so lethal, tiny amounts. They even traced it to the airplane that went back to Russia. And, of course, the Russians say, absolutely nothing to do with us. Are you all making this up? I mean, you've got to be making this up. Where'd you get this information from? And then the guy who killed him uh, ran for parliament, whatever that means in Russia, not a lot. And um, so he couldn't be extradited or something. Of course, he refused to come to, to, the, to the UK. And it's exactly the same as all the doping allegations. You know, it's sort of like, what do you mean taking drugs? Of course not. This is a Western... <laughs> You know, everyone's on fucking drugs. Well, everyone's know that everyone on the Eastern Bloc, let alone the Western Bloc, has been on drugs for like 50 fucking years. You know, that's, <laughs> what, they, that's what they do. You know, it's a sort of glorified state cheating, isn't it? That's yes. what they do. They don't, you know. No, it's it's true. That story that you were talking about is amazing. There's a book, I believe the title's called The Olig Oligarchs. And um, it chronicles that story you just told about the uh, the, the guy that was poisoned by that uh, was a plutonium. Is that what you said it was? Yeah, um, yeah. An amazing story that traces it from the beginning to the end. It's scary. It's a scarifying story. Yeah, I know. So I mean, you know, it's a, so you know, so whatever dirty tricks with the what's it Democratic Party? That's peanuts. I mean, you know, like who? You know, I mean. How, how how sort of Trump says, oh, I don't believe that. No, of course, that's not true. I mean, you know, sort of, obviously, it's very hard to find out what's true and what's not true. But I had some friends in over here, and because Putin's been around quite a long time, and I had some friends. In fact, uh, uh, the guy was uh, the, the Czech film, Milos Forman. It was a friend of his. 
and uh, it must have been, God, that must have been 20 or 30 years ago, and I had a friend who knew them, and um, this was like obviously when the, we had still had the iron curtain up and all that stuff. And these, I remember being in some flat of these guys, and when Putin's name came up, and I knew nothing about who he was or anything, they knew everything about Putin. They said, "Oh man, this is going to be," you know, they they read it because all the Eastern Europeans, and I've got quite a few friends in Poland. These these guys were from the Czech Republic, and they all absolutely hate the fucking Russians because the Russians ran their country for fucking fifty years, you know. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's no laughing matter for them. It, it, you know, it was like they had the Russians in their country, you know, if not by directly by proxy regimes, you know, Poland and everywhere. It's all run by the Russians. Yeah, we don't take the Russians too lightly here either. As far as we're concerned, we've never left the Cold War. They've never, <clears throat> they've never been our friends. They've never been our allies, and we see them as serious issues over here as well. We don't, we have, we have no trust for them at all. As far as I'm concerned, well, well you know, Perestroika. A friend of mine was quite good friends with the what was the guy called Perestroika guy, the first guy with, yeah. with the sort of mark on his forehead. What was he called? Gorbachev. Gorbachev. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, well, this friend of mine who worked for the government over here, he became quite good friends with Gorbachev, and he was actually really quite a good guy, Gorbachev. He seemed like but, a good guy. He came off he came off yeah. like a, a good guy. He seemed like someone who was trying to really turn Russia into more modern and progressive progressive society, but it didn't hold, didn't stick. All right, well, let's just uh, let's just talk about you. And I first became acquainted with you on the Midnight Special. We talked about that Kirshner's rock concert, one of those two, and American Bandstand. So what are you up to? What are you doing these days? Tell me about your projects. What is Chris Jagger doing? The bands you're working with? I know you're doing lots of different things. It's a start well, one no, at a time. No, I'm just I'm finishing off this uh, best. I've got a, a BMG from Berlin. They bought my catalog, and um, they've got my uh, publishing and everything. And we're putting out a, uh, all the best. I'm calling it. So it, it's a it's it, it's a selection from all the albums apart from the one album that Curb still have, which I have absolutely no rights over. Um, <clears throat> so I can't use any of those tracks, and that was quite a good album. So all the other albums I've got, they bought up about five CDs worth, and we're putting out all the best. And that should have been out already, but then um, we wanted to include a, a, a DVD, so there's been a few hiccups on the way, but we're we're putting out the DVD that I did with John Payton over there in Austin. I got the blues in Austin, which we did uh, one weekend when I came over. Um, I had a planned trip to Austin to see John, and uh, we had the radio show called the Bluesium of Fine Art that he set up, and I used to do my little bit from over here with a voiceover, and then he'd stitch it up together at Bill Ham's place. The guy who managed it was ZZ Top, and uh, and then that would go out on a weekly basis. And so I made a date to, to to come over there to Austin. And then, as it happened, the Rolling Stones rescheduled a show, and they did a show in Austin the same weekend that I was coming out. Was I was out there for a week, and so John said, "Hey, this is too good an opportunity to miss. Let's film it." 
So we, we filmed it and we went around to um, Antone's and with Susan Antone. She was great. She helped set up all the contacts. So I interviewed a bunch of people, Hubert Sumlin, um, uh, Pine Top, went to Pine Top Perkins' house. We took Pine Top to the Stones show. We did a little clip with my brother, Chuck Lavelle, playing a bit of uh, piano. The only thing was that show was on a Sunday. And uh, Pine Top had taken a vow or told his mother or something that he was never play Boogie Woogie on a Sunday. <laughs> so he refused to play piano. All he would play is um, Precious Lord. You know, everyone was on that one. And um, so that was a bit difficult. We had to negotiate around that one. But then we went to Pine Top's house, and he was great playing the piano, and we had a jam and all that stuff. And we did it all in one in a couple of days. And uh, Double Trouble, Chris uh, Layton, and um, Tommy Shannon. And then it ended up with me jamming at Anton's with Hubert, which was great, but. And they filmed it, but the sound was unusable because it was too loud and they didn't have a limiter on. So we got no sound on it. But anyway, so we stitched together a little video with that. And we're going to include this video with this album of mine. So it's, it's, it's a CD, 15 tracks down the, down from the nineties to the present day and this DVD. So I'm doing that with BMG and obviously they want to set it up. So it's going to get maximum interest and attention and all that stuff and it, 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 it it's um you know because i'm looking after myself i'm doing the whole thing it's so time consuming i've just been doing the artwork with my elliot who does plays fiddle with me she's very good and she's doing the artwork in photoshop and boy is it, it goes on and on and on all the little details of this and that and the other and and uh and the stuff and the contractual stuff off and oh my god so anyway we're, we're, we're getting there but it's a bit of a process so in the meantime i'm you know doing little gigs here and there but nothing much i'm hoping this album's going to come out and you know i'm looking forward to coming to the u.s to do some kind of a tour to do some dates you know either with a, some musicians over there which probably be the cheapest option or bring a couple with me or whatever we can manage but I hear Trump is upping the uh, <laughs> ante. Uh, well, you may laugh, but it's going to increase the cost of the uh, visa. That's not good. We want you. We want you in the United States. We want you in Texas. We want you everywhere we can get you here. So whatever it takes to help you get on over here, you just uh, let us know about it. We'll see what we can't do to defray some of those costs. Well, I did meet one. Where was it? I met the governor of Louisiana. And he and he was like, because if you can get someone to endorse you and get on some program, like for instance, I went to, I played in Russia a couple of years back with a, a blues guy, and the reason we got these visas, it was because it was some with a cultural association. It wasn't really a commercial thing; it was a cultural association, and. You know, whether you can do that in the U.S., I don't know. Well, let's yeah. see what we can do to figure out the rules and regs. No, um, I, and know. I, I wrote a story for, a, you know, I also do some journalism. Yes. In fact, one of the questions I want to ask is where can we read your work? On my on my on on my site online. Excellent. So we can read your writing on your website. But I also wrote a story some years ago about obtaining uh, U.S. visas and stuff. I researched that pretty thoroughly and uh 
I, it's changed a bit since then. But I mean, it, it's just gotten this bureaucracy. Is, I mean, I, I had to fill in a form for Australia the other day and they have questions in there like, um, have you ever been to a terrorist training camp? <laughs> so funny. This is why in, uh, over here in this part of the world, we have such a huge distrust of government. We, we really don't. We don't think of them as the arbiters of brain power. You know, we, we think of them as in the way and whoever gets into office is the lesser of two evils, not speaking to this current uh, president. Yeah, you're but, talking about bureaucracy, aren't you? Uh, more, yes, bureaucracy and much more than that. But, yeah, we could start with bureaucracy. They just get in the way of everything and they do things like act, act, ask on an immigration forum, have you ever been to a terrorist training camp? I mean, this is the mind boggles. There's so many questions. And, of course, if, if it was simple, it would be fine. But then you have to have your birth certificate. You have to have a police. You have, I have to pay £60 for a, a police report to say I haven't done anything wrong. Well, if I was moving to the U.S., you know, and, and trying to get a permanent visa and all that, I can understand that. But we're talking about playing a gig in a bar and then going <laughs> home. I mean, you know, crying out loud. Look, at, we want you. We want you here. So let's see what we can do to to do to help that out. When do you think you might be coming to the states, or when are you aiming at trying to come to the states? All right. Um, good question. Well, let me know. Well, you have to set up enough dates to make it worthwhile because your costs are, you know, like if you spend five thousand dollars on your visa. And then you spend another fifteen hundred on flights. You know, you could be up to six, seven, eight thousand dollars before you even leave home. Yeah. So you, you know, it's no good coming for one gig unless that one gig is going to pay fifty grand. You know, if one gig is going to pay you a thousand dollars, you got to do six gigs just to pay for your expenses. So if you do ten gigs, then you're only making money on four gigs. So it, it, it's a sort of you know, I mean, the, the the thing is, there obviously there are restrictions and there is homeland security. But what it boils down to is a kind of restriction on a more serious note is restriction of trade. And somebody said to me, well, the thing is that uh, Europe uh, is happier to have Beyonce than the U.S. is to have some rock guitarist coming over there. So basically they want it as a one way traffic. It's a lot easier to get into Europe for American musicians than it is for European musicians to get to America. Well, let's make it clear that the people don't feel that way. We all want you here. It's our crazy, insane government that puts up those barriers. I know, but that's what they're talking about with this trade deal, because they also it also means when they say trade, they mean uh, your uh, somebody coming over to, and this is temporary work, uh, to, for instance, a visiting professor, you know, at Berkeley, or, you know, to play a sports or something like that, or, you know, because it, it applies all the way across the board. And I think it's a shame that people don't, I mean, because, you know, with musicians, they love, I mean, it's not really just about the money. You know what musicians are like. They, you know, they like getting together, chatting about people they know, playing songs they know, old times and all that. And, and that's what musicians and people thrive on. So whether you're from Australia, Germany, US, whatever, 
I mean, they don't really care that much. And I think this thing about governments making it this kind of, um, you know, it's, it's not, it's really bad because I mean, over here, we, you know, we've got the European Union, uh, as was. Now we're going to leave the goddamn EU, which to my mind is completely bonkers, although there's things wrong with it. It's not perfect, but I always felt that you know, we go to Germany and not that long after the, uh, the Berlin Wall and everything came down, we were over there playing in, in what was East Germany, go to Czechoslovakia, go to Poland. And they love having you go there. And as a cultural exchange, it's really important. And I, people make friends, they stay with people over there. So culturally, you get a really interesting thing happening. This is not about politics, making money governments trading this is just about people culturally having sharing things that they enjoy and you know to cut all this off well this is what happened with russia isn't it this is what happened in the cold war i mean they they stopped anyone listening to rock and roll and i mean basically what it came down to was people lived in in yugoslavia as was and they would get the radio from italy and they, all they wanted was beatles rolling stones and blue jeans you know yeah. right. and it, right. they didn't really care about the politics they wanted to be the same as the other youth and um you know be part of that whole culture and of course the uh, the the government on top uh, disapproved of all that just as the same the government probably in this country disapproved of it but there's nothing they could do about it you know it's the same thing as when they banned elvis from the waist down or whatever you know it was the same kind of thing you know and so it's all about all this it's kind of about censorship isn't it a lot of it you know it's, it's about censorship right? censorship is a, is a you know it's quite a, it's quite a critical thing and um when these people told me stories in, in, in Eastern Europe and that, I mean, they used to, because to get a pair of blue jeans in East Germany, it cost you like a month's wages or something. It was like unbelievable. And, and they, they all learn English by listening to records. And, you know, they just wanted, they didn't want to have this overreaching governmental thing telling them what to do, you know, and um, I can totally empathize with that and i i think whatever i mean i've been involved in you know books and um writing and films and music you know modern cultural ideas and they're universal you know they they're universal and so it's only governments and say uh-uh you can't come to china or whatever you you can't come here and play that music I mean, was it Bob Dylan? And they said to Bob Dylan, "You you can't play these songs or something." You know? Yeah. Well, he yeah he faced uh, that was very difficult. If we're talking about the same thing, or if I if I'm familiar with what you're talking about, it's the time that he switched over to uh, in the states to from acoustic to electric, and even the audience was saying, "No, no, you can't do that." But no, they, no, this is when he went to China, didn't he play in China? But they told him he couldn't play certain songs or something like that. Wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me a bit, but I'm not familiar with that story. Well, you probably, I expect the Stones wouldn't be allowed to play Street Fighting Man <laughs> in Tiananmen Square. I was just going to say, a Tiananmen Square, it wouldn't go over well at all, would it? No, well, it didn't happen, did it? No, no, of course not. Never happened. Not, not, not searchable on the internet in China at all. 
I agree with you. You know what you're saying. I happen to. Music is my first and favorite love. There's nothing more fun and more interesting than music. The creative process, artists, just like you said a minute ago, they just want to get around, talk, have fun. There's a lot of brotherly love in a circle of musicians just talking about stuff. Then they pick up their instruments and they jam and they make beautiful music. It's the most incredible scene in the world, and um, yeah, and they enjoy themselves together. And and I mean, and then of course they, you know, they help each other. And it's it's, it's a whole network. I mean. You know, that's what's happened, you know, when you, you, you're talking to me and asking me what it's like with me. Well, because like the Rolling Stones has become such a worldwide phenomena and it's lasted so long that you never would have imagined. There's this whole kind of Rolling Stones family thing, you know, and. I mean, obviously, it started out with young kids, but I mean, now it's not. It's people are eighty years older are Rolling Stones fans, you know. You, you know, people that have retired that follow the band around, and so then obviously they notice me, and then they thought, oh well, we, uh, and I get the impression that they really like it because you're different, you know. You're I'm brother of Mick, but you're different. Oh no, we really respect that, you know, and I. Almost invariably, that's what I get. And the only non-respect I get is from journalists in general because they want to make a point and they want to write something and they might not, they might want to write something not very nice. I don't know what that has been the case, but usually with fans, they come to your show and everything. Oh, really? Oh, no, we're a Rolling Stones fan. We really like your stuff as well. Yeah, we're going to buy your record because that's what happened, you know, with, with not only the Rolling Stones, but people like Eric Clapton and like, you know, they turn people onto Robert Johnson. Oh, we, are, we, so we've, you know, we've, uh, we didn't hear Robert Johnson before we heard Eric Clapton do it, you know. And so it's a kind of progression. And so then they've, and like people say, oh, you play Cajun music. How did, how did that happen? You know, where, where that come from and that sort of thing. And so then they go down that avenue and they go, oh yeah, we discovered all that through you doing it. And so it's a kind of process of, um, family, association and stuff and i think that's a really nice thing and that that isn't really highlighted very much what generally is highlighted with me is oh it must be really difficult being mixed brother you know that they go on about that and i go well what's the problem and someone said that the other day and i said well you know it could be you could be the son of a mass murderer that might be more of a problem (laughs) um you know so like (laughs) You know, like, it's not that bad, you know, for Christ's sake. You know, once you get used to it. Um, <laughs> How long did it take to get used to it? Yeah, well, quite a long time. <laughs> but, I mean, obviously, people can get hung up about certain things, and that's understandable that happens. But what I'm saying is, um, you know, it's, it's – it, and the interesting thing is, particularly when I meet um, uh, black American musicians, you know, they go, oh, I know who you are. They have no problem whatsoever with you playing music and Mick playing music and maybe your cousin plays music and whatever, the whole family plays music or sing gospel or whatever. They have no problem for them. That's quite natural and normal. And they also, because, I mean, it's not entirely a black thing. There's anyone that's really family orientated, they go, Oh yeah, well we know your we know your brother or we know your thing. Come on in, you're one of us. You don't have no questions asked because you're related, and that's really nice acceptance that I've 
always found with, um, you know, if I meet up, in fact, making that film with John Payton, you know, we went in there, they all knew sort of who I was, they knew about, you know, you know I was a mixed brother, you know, that's it. They don't have to ask any questions. You know, they they assumed I must know this, that, the other, and and, and um, yeah, it was just that was it. I mean, I I met Hubert Stumlin. It was like we already knew each other for twenty years or something. Oh yeah, you know, da 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 da. And this is great camaraderie that you get. Well, I'm sure you get it with people that you know make you know hydroelectric dams. You know, you know. <laughs> Not well, quite the same. Not quite the same art, art artistry involved, but uh, probably astronauts or something. Yeah, I was up there. Oh man, I was floating free. Yeah, uh, I almost lost my grip and floated off towards Jupiter. You know, poor, <laughs> that's a close one. You yeah, know, but... I mean, you've got to be an astronaut to know what another astronaut's gone through, probably. You know, so this every little avenue of life has got its own little niches and camaraderies and all that and, and music is, is not really any any different it just happens to be a bit more of a social thing you know you know chris i think it is different i'll tell you why i think it's different because it is a universal language everybody relates to it in one form or another and not everyone's really relating to uh you know space travel i mean everyone's interested in it but no one's listening to it or talking to it uh, or or hearing from it or researching it on a daily basis and music on the other hand it's something that we're infused with every single day of our lives and for some people and many 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 millions of people um several times a day and sometimes all day depending what you're running it's a much bigger language and much more universal and speaking about being accepted to the club you're extraordinarily gifted in your own right i think that I know you'll agree, and, and maybe I'm overdoing the point here, but you would have been accepted into the club irrespective of your brother because you're extraordinarily gifted. You're a great artist. Well, you know, that's maybe, who knows? I mean, there's quite a lot of people that are unknown that, that have done a lot of great things. So, I mean, it's the luck of the draw and all that right place, right time and all that shit. But um, anyway, that's my kind of take on the whole take on the whole thing. And when I was younger... Obviously, when you're adolescent and you're growing up to be someone's famous brother, you could it could confuse you a little bit. You know, like on the one hand, it's great. And on the other hand, you might be nobody notices you. So that's quite difficult. But when you get to a certain age, I think with me, it was like 40 or something. You know, you kind of go, I'm 40 now. Who gives a shit? You know, so if someone says, well, isn't that a bit of a hang up being Mick Jagger's brother? Who gives a shit? <laughs> you know, I mean, once you adopt the attitude, there's really, you know, well, what's, you got a problem with it? You know, I don't have a problem with it. You got a problem with it? You know, I mean, hey, there's people like hell of a lot worse off. You know, you could be coming out of Aleppo, you know, with losing your leg and nothing to eat and your head in a mess, you know, like, Jesus, there's so many unfortunate people out there. I mean, it's ridiculous that people would think yeah. even that that that, that accident of birth could be, you know, because whatever you're born with, you've got to, you know, go on with it. That's why people say, sometimes they say, did you ever think of changing your name? And you go, well, I don't know. I was born with that name. It was my dad's name. So why have I got to change it? for? I mean, it probably would have been a good idea if you want to do a sort of be a stage actor and you had no you didn't want any kind of reference to someone else. But I once did a TV show with Paul McCartney's brother, and he changed his name. He changed his name to Mike McGear. That was probably a bit of a joke. Anyway, 
So he was walking across the studio and someone said, that's Mike McGear. That's Paul McCartney's brother. <laughs> so I went, well, Jesus, there's so much for changing the name. You know, you might as well, like, you know, might as well just be, you know, Mike McCartney. You know, oh, yeah, okay. That's, you know, you don't even have to say it's his brother because it's Mike McCartney. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. Hi, Mike. You know, that was everything. And, uh, you know, obviously that must have been quite difficult for him that he was the older brother. So, um, well, you, you stand, know. you stand so completely. I've never thought when I think of Chris Jagger, I never think of Mick Jagger. I always think of you as distinct and separate from your brother. Your music is yours. It doesn't sound like your brother's. You do a lot of stuff completely unlike that sound. And I, I've never made the relationship other than the last name. So I, to me, it's a, it's irrelevant. It's just who is Chris as an I'm artist. Music maybe, but I mean, for a lot of people, they they want to they want to keep it because the thing is, if you're not as famous as, you're less famous than. Sort of, if you're not as well known as someone, you're you know you're you're sitting on the sidelines slightly. So, because I mean, there are a lot of people. It's quite interesting. You could make quite a good program. Like Bing Crosby, he had a brother. He was a band leader, Bob Crosby. Buddy Guy's brother played. Happened to him. I didn't catch up with him too much. Um, I mean, it's, it's littered with there's a history, but generally speaking, what happens with brothers is quite interesting because uh, there's a guy not too far from me. He lives here, David Knopfler, who's Mark Knopfler's brother, and I think he has quite. A, now he played with his brother in the band. Drums, right? No, no, he's a guitar player. He's a guitar player. Okay. And but they had a big falling out or something. So you never see him. He still he doesn't play anymore with him, and obviously he's had it's been quite difficult because he he didn't really write any of the songs and stuff. His brother his brother wrote it, and it's the same with Ray Davis. He fell out with his brother who was in the band, Dave Davis. <laughs> so like they start off playing together, and then they have this terrible fallout and never speak for the rest of their lives. The thing is, those fallouts happen in bands all the time, whether you're related or not. So it's, you just got to figure it's going to happen. And I think maybe, the brothers had something similar, didn't they? They were always fighting. On. Well, the Gallagher brothers, Noel and Liam, they they don't talk, apparently. Well, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. These things happen in music, man. I've always described being in a band as having... Um, uh, however many people are in the band, the fewer the easier to get along with, but not necessarily the band that you have an idea, you know, creating the sound that you want. But the more people in a band, the more individual relationships you're having. It's like having five or four or three wives all at the same time, and you somehow right. have to make that all work. Well, you you must know more about that than I do, but yeah, <laughs> not mostly myself. Well, you're but, lucky to be a solo artist in a lot of ways. No, I'm not. I've got I've got a band, and you know, and I, and I play. But it, I tell you something that's been important to me down down through a long period of time is that I've been very fortunate to play with some uh, really good musicians. I wouldn't say that they were top fantastic session musicians or anything like that, but they were really top class of musician. And um, I found that their respect has made, meant really a lot to me and given me a lot of confidence because they wouldn't hang around with me and to play my songs and everything if they thought it was just crap. So you think, well, if he thinks, he thinks, you know, if he wants to come play with me and thinks I'm good, well, I'll take heart from that. And I'll tell you what, that's made 
a big difference in my life because when you whatever you do you question it you know should I be doing this and confidence and everything like that and that's just natural and um, even people that are really really famous you never think they would ever question their own ability they lack confidence sometimes and oh you know I can't do this and I can't do that and you know writer's block or something you know I'll never write another thing or and uh, that's meant an awful lot to me is having musicians around me and also t- to be able to have those musicians around you and get the best out of them because that's something that is almost uh, like being a conductor. And you don't necessarily have to be that technical a musician for that. You have to have an all encompassing kind of idea of the show and how it's presented and how you're going to entertain because a lot of the time musicians are so into the music they miss the bigger picture of the whole thing and you know i think that's what my brother's you know very good at he's very good at orchestrating the whole thing i mean he he runs the whole thing you know it would have never happened without without him running the whole show organizing it doing all the business that all the other guys yeah sure Charlie plays the drums, and that's about all he does, you know. Helps a little bit with the graphic design. But, I mean, is you know, my brother's put that whole – he's like Barnum and Bailey or something, you know. It's like the whole show. It, it, okay, you've got to get up and sing. That's part of it. But um, it's, you know, the, you know, I don't know how you use them and where they come along and – what order you do the songs in and who does a solo here and all that stuff. It's like if you're the singer or the guy in the middle running, doing all that, you know, it's quite rewarding. But, of course, you're not necessarily the person with that virtuosity to do all that stuff. You've got to let other people run with it. But that's really nice. So I found that I've kind of had a bit of a talent to do that. And I... You know, so the musicians that have played with me, I always like to see to get the best out of them, to have them enjoying themselves and projecting and doing really well, because that's the that's the mark of a success, successful gig, a successful band, is that people being engaged and doing it. Because you do hear a lot of stories. Oh, I hate playing with such and such. He's such a wanker. Um, you know, he's an egomaniac. He doesn't let me do this. He doesn't let me do that. And, you know, I can't play any solos. And it, uh, so people do play with a lot of tours and stuff, but they play basically for the money and it's a job. And then when they finish, they want to do their own album, you know, because they're not really that interested in the whole thing. Quite often people become quite disillusioned with the whole thing. So, I mean, I think it's really important to let people have you know, freedom to express themselves, enjoy themselves. And that's partly, you know, a really crucial thing that what the singer has to do, you know. So. You, you know, every band has to have a CEO or a leader for it to work and hold it all together. How do you, it's sort of a, 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 tangent, a tangent question here, but how did Lennon and McCartney make that work with two enormously talented writers? How did they make that work? And do you think that by the time they broke up, it was all about a leadership problem? Um, I really don't know. I mean, I only ever saw the Beatles once and I couldn't hear them because the girls were screaming so loud. <laughs> so, um, 
But they had two massive leaders there, two massive egos and big leaders there. Do you? Yeah, I think George was always very disappointed that he was slightly excluded from the writing process by the other two. So that didn't really help. Uh, but that's the sort of thing that happens. But I think we just complimented each other great, didn't they? Because they both sang. You know, that was that was that was the thing. Well, it is great. I mean, there's all that kind of harmony stuff. And I was hearing a program the other day about Graham Nash, he did, and he loved all that harmony singing. And I sort of agree with that. But at the same time, I do like a solo voice, you know, singing. It's sort of, as soon as you start singing with someone else, you've got, obviously, you've got to sing together. So you've got to do parts. It's a little bit more constricting. So you can't sort of go off on a sort of, you know, I mean, you wouldn't be able to sing with Bob Dylan or John Lee Hooker or something because you never know what they're going to do. <laughs> That's true. It's, it's so kind of wild. But, um, you know, the Beatles, yeah, well, you wouldn't want to tell John what to do, would you? I mean, no. John was really the probably the most sort of forthright. But I don't know Paul was forthright. They were all. I mean, I think the great thing about a band is that everybody's got a say. So if it was like... um you know, it could be Ringo there and he'd just go, well, I think that's a load of crap. Because he's not employed. He's part of the band, so he's part of the decision-making, so he's able to say that. Because if, you, if you're if you Rod Stewart or whatever and you hire a band, they're all paid. The drummer's never going to say, I think that's a load of crap. You're, I think your lyrics are crap, Rod. He's never going to say that because he'll get the sack. But if you're if you're in the band and you joined it all together, you're not going to get the sack. They can't sack you unless unless you fall down drunk ten times a week and you can't do it anymore. So I mean, the nice thing about a band is a democratic process. So people, if they don't want to take a front seat, they can take a back seat. That's fine. But then if they want to come in and say something, then yeah, fine. They might be overruled. You know, but that's kind of that's what's really nice about a band. But that's not the same as what it is now with a lot of you know. It's like all done with a process with a producer or you know Nile Rogers is not being a band and someone's going to tell him Nile, I don't like that riff. You know, um, you, you know, it's sort of. I mean, in a studio, you have that's why there's always a problem in a studio with bands is because they go in a studio to make an album. And then they have a producer and then the producer decides they want us to do a certain thing. And then the band says, Oh no, I don't like that. And so, well, the producer can say, well, okay, if you want me to be the producer, that's what I think. So it's down to me. If you don't want me to be the producer, then do it yourself. So quite often they say, yeah, all right, we'll do it ourselves. And then they have these endless arguments and the record takes years to make, costs a fortune. There's a lot of shit at the end of it. Is because everyone wants to have their say. And, I mean, personally, it's good to get along with people and get people's opinions and ideas. But I think a lot of it is important down to one person, how they see something, rather than you can't design it by committee. You know, like designing stuff by committee, you know, because you say – I think this cover should be red. And then, and then the other blokes, because you said red, they'll say, what about green? And the other person says, well, it could be yellow. And then the other person says, well, what about blue? 
and you go, yeah, for fuck's sake, you know, so like, it's sort of like, then you've got to justify everything, you know, well, well, why, why do you, why do you think that? Oh, it's sort of like you make a move in chess, you know, why do you make that move in chess? You know, like, it might be the wrong move. And it's like making an album and as it, is, is a lot of decisions. You come to the, what do you like? And then the old days, they used to have to make loads more decisions because they only had about four tracks. So they say, we'll bounce that onto there and we'll keep that. And we'll bounce it onto there and we'll do that and like that. And you couldn't keep all this stuff because you couldn't store it. So people had to make decisions. So you may have made the wrong decision, but whatever, you made the decision. And that's what it's about. Nowadays, the problem is there's so many options, you know, and I found that some years ago when they introduced digital technology to it, then I was making an album. And so we had all these tracks and then we had overdubs and everything. And then the guy, what he did, he is, a, I didn't know him, the, the guy, engineer guy, he said, so we went through all these tracks and he said, well, that's not right there. That's not right there. So basically what he did is excluded all the things that were incorrect or the wrong notes or the this or that, the other or the flat bit there. And then you say so you eliminated the mistakes. And then you listen back to it and you go, sounds crap. <laughs> Why does it sound crap? Because you've eliminated the mistakes. So uh, what are you saying? Mistakes are a good thing or a bad thing. So the thing about computer music is, of course, you can go through every little thing and you can eliminate all the mistakes. But it does make it intrinsically boring. I don't know why, because in a way, the mistakes are kind of interesting. Well, the mistakes add personality and vibe. The um, the uh, computer adds perfection, and you know, there's something nice about the ear picking up a little bit of imperfection or a slight flat note on a bend, a slight flat note on a bend on a string. Or you listen to Hendrix play. Um, there's an awful lot of flats going on there that are supposed to be you know, in tune, and that's because he hit that whammy bar a lot, but it does nothing but add a whole bunch of personality and suggest that this guy has been playing the hell out of his guitar. And so there's a lot of personality in that imperfection. But he was, he, Jimmy was his own worst enemy, wasn't it? I mean, you've probably seen the program about Jimmy. Jimmy in recording studio without a producer, you know, you just go on and on and on, take after take after take, you get more and more tired, and you end up with a lot of shit. Didn't Chas just end up leaving the studio on multiple occasions because that's what he was doing, just uh, take over, take over, take, and Chas just said, to hell with this, call me when the record's done? Probably. <laughs> I mean, that, 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 that ha well, this is this concept of overdubbing. So you so you, you do the track, and then you have to overdub. Well, we used to have to do this overdub. But if you listen to those um, – recordings done in new york city with frank sinatra and nelson riddle and everything and they're all doing it live it's fantastic yeah, yeah. it's like i mean i've been listening to a lot of um all that old swing band stuff and uh yeah you try and do that now i'd like to see someone you know that would be a major accomplishment to, to do all that now and, uh i mean it's so live and um 
so happening that it's great, you know. And I did the some of these more my more recent records. I more or less did them live, and I did the vocals live because I didn't want to do. I thought, well, he's playing the guitar live, he's playing the drums live. He's like, I'm going to do my vocals live <laughs> because people say don't do it like that because what happens is if you make one really bad thing, you can't change it. You have to live with it. So. You can't if you like you say you really sing flat or you you fuck up you have to do another take. But I enjoyed it because the thing is that you're in the moment and you're doing it. Yeah. Whereas if you do an overdub, you're not in the moment. You're listening on headphones. So you're listening on headphones. You think, oh, I could do something really good here. Da, 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 da. And so <laughs> it's another part of your brain almost that you're engaging. And then you say, oh, stop, stop the machine. I want to do that bit again. It's sort of like, man, you know, it's sort of like a Japanese, you know, painting. They do the brush stroke. That's it. You know, it loses its spontaneity. Well, you have to learn how to do the brush stroke. It might take you 20 years to learn how to do the brush stroke. But then when you do the brush stroke, it's one continuous stroke. You can't, can't stop halfway and sort of rub a bit out. It's sort of, it's in the process of it. That's in the moment. I mean, you know, people love all that Charlie Parker stuff, don't they? Where we've got all the different horn solos on the, you know, take four of that. People go, you get records with all the takes of, you know, in the studio, you did five takes and you can buy all five takes. They're all different. And you go, wow. And <laughs> you can listen to them. They chose one of them for the record. But, you know, who's to say what Charlie Parker played was right or wrong? I, you know, right. different. You know, speaking, you said something earlier um, that I wanted to just touch on. You mentioned about uh, being in the business or any business and questioning if you're in the right place and building confidence by playing with other people. But your brother asked you to write some lyrics for one of his songs. Didn't that really validate, if you didn't have it already, which I think you would have already, uh, at the very least at that point, wouldn't it have validated your your creativity as an artist and your acceptance and, and gifts as an artist? Yeah, or he got a cheap way to get a few more ideas. Yeah, but he used them. The thing is he used them. Cheap, cheap. Yeah, no, it's nice, yeah, because I wasn't really, yeah, it was nice. I mean, it would have been nice to have a credit on the album. Well, you can still poke them in the ribs, can't you? You have access. I don't have it. No, I mean, <laughs> I didn't really get a proper credit for it, but, but I, so what? I mean, yeah, like you say, yeah, because I was just about to do that first album, and then um, I don't know what happened, and then uh, and he was working with Dave Stewart, and I think Dave Stewart picked up on it because he was very complimentary to me about my lyrics and stuff and um so and my point was really that yeah that my brother w wouldn't use the the ideas if they weren't any good he wouldn't do it as a favor he wasn't doing me a favor he was doing himself a favor that was his prime motive you know for whatever reason he just wanted a few more ideas and maybe he just dried up a bit or he's fed up with doing the thing or who knows i don't know why he never explained that to me but um, it was nice to be asked. And also I saw partly how the process worked. And I was quite impressed by his editing of it because he had a lot of different options. 
And if you've ever seen Bob Dylan's stuff, it's like, yeah, he's got like 12 verses, but there's another 15 that he didn't use. <laughs> or, right. or sometimes he'd substitute, you know, how he keeps up with what he does. I don't know. But, you know, even with my brother, he would, uh, so he'd work through, edit and edit and substitute this word for that word. I mean, if you look at how poets or something like T.S. Eliot was writing, you can see they go through the same thing. You know, it's very rare that you, I mean, I have done writing out the whole thing and never changed anything, but that's kind of quite rare. I mean, you're not changing the idea, but you are nevertheless improving little dashes here and there because who's the guy done like Paul Simon? You can see the way he works like that. I mean, it's, it's almost scientific, you know, how he, he came to do that, um, Gracelands album. And there was a program, you know, you've probably seen it on documentary he did on, on, on those things and you know what he worked through to get it right and sounding right and I mean it, it, lyric writing and doing words has mainly been what I you know I mean I tunes I'm not so good at but lyrics I've you know studied more and um, you know and that's what my my brother's studied so um, and that's what he's come up with and uh, and it's um, a crucial part of it almost like to write the good lyric is almost more important than the tune, I would say, because if you come up with a really, really good lyric, it almost suggests its own tune. Um, you know, it's interesting you say that because I think that's true. But then I, one day I looked up the lyrics to Quis, uh, uh, Quicksilver Messenger Service. Um, right. Remember those guys? Um, What's that hit they had? Um, they had a really, really cool song. Take another hit, I think it was. And um, the song carries the lyrics. The lyrics don't make any sense at all. I think they, yeah, they, were, well, <laughs> they make no sense. Like, what is this guy writing about? You'd have to be in his head at the time, and he's probably on acid and and a whole bunch of but other. But you stuff. need the two together, don't you? You know, like somebody like uh, you know Irving Berlin or or something like that. You know that they, they kind of. It, but then you know a lot of those really really good songs they were split up and two or three Johnny Mercer and, and different people wrote different parts of it and I mean and those guys were serious students of how to write you know and sometimes they did over egg it with the too many clever clever you know, it was a sort of Jewish Tim Pan Alley thing. But, I mean, that was where the whole science kind of – that's where it was. It, you know, it was like they those guys were serious songwriters. That that's all they sort of did, you know. So, I mean, this this new thing started with Joni Mitchell or, or whoever. Oh, you're because you're, you're the artist, you've got to write the song. Uh, that was never what I mean. Elvis, what did Elvis ever write? No, nothing. No, he was not a writer. He was a uh, he was a performer, is what he was. He's big so, he knew, so he knew what he knew what his strength was. You know, you know. tell me he about his name on a few few records. Though they they used to do that. There were a lot of managers, weren't there? That they used to put their name as though they'd done, written a song. Yeah, I'll publish that song. He put my name on it. You know, Leibovitz. You know, you know. <laughs> couldn't write one note of music and ended up writing 150 songs. It was one famous guy. Tell me about your record that's coming out, The Best of Chris Jagger. How's it weighted? What, do, what? But I'm going to have to put the chickens in because it's now dark. Okay, tell me that and I'll let you go. 
what uh, what's on the record? Tell me what to expect on the record. Well, there's quite a few tracks from Channel Fever, which is the last record I did on tape, which was you know great when you used to use, use tape, but it got very expensive using tape. So, and then quite a lot of tracks from Act of Faith, and a couple of things that are a bit more obscure and quite hard mashing it all together because you know there's a country song and there's you know like things that you know because my music is a little bit this and a little bit of that and there's not much cajun stuff on it most of that cajun stuff i did was on that curb record but a few of that some of those songs were on there and i can't use that one which is annoying but um and also with my uh, trio and acoustic stuff, I haven't put much anything of that on because it doesn't really sit when you've got a more of a driving thing. So it's quite rocky and it's quite driving and, and quite rocky. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of bluesy, rocky, middle, you know, that kind of old fashioned shit, you know. But I mean, it <laughs> came out with a blues album and everybody loves it. So, you know, hey, there's hope for us all. And incidentally, there's two tracks on there that I always used to do. I'm just your fool. I, I did used to play that song for years and years and years because it's basically, you know, it's a composite. It's an eight bar and a, and a 12 bar blues. And I always used to do that one. And, um, um, just like I treat you, I used to do that one. And now I can't do them anymore because it's on the Blue and Lonesome album. Okay. All right. Which is slightly annoying. It's like you do it, you know, in your set, if you do cover songs and then you find out, oh, actually, Eric Clapton's recorded that and had a really quite a good hit with it. All right. Drop that from the set. Because, you know, people like to do obscure-ish type tunes. As soon as someone makes it famous, they come up, oh, you copied that from Eric Clapton. Yeah, yeah. Don't you love that? Yeah, but of course, Eric Clapton, I can't think of hardly a blues tune he hasn't done. So, you know. <laughs> All right. Listen, I know you got to bring the chickens in, but we can yeah. we, we can read your, we can read your writing, yeah. we can buy the music, and we can learn about your touring at Chris Jagger Online, right? Yeah. All right, All right Craig, well, Thanks for the time. Soon. Take care, Bye-bye. Cheers. Cheers.